Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's returning guest is Mark Jenkins with his new film, Ennis Men. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Now, hold on a second. Let me get this right. It's Ennis Main, isn't it? Yeah. So it's as if it's spelled M A N E. Yeah. So it comes from the Cornish word menia, which right. means standing stone or long stone, and okay. main being the first syllable meaning stone. Okay. Now, that is released in cinemas in UK and Ireland on the 13th of January. Yep. I was saying to you before we started recording that I was at an Extreme Metal concert. And one of the bands that have, that's become my favourite new band are called We Lost the Sea, which is a really enigmatic title of a band, never mind a song. Yeah. And I only say that because the first question I wrote down is what is it about you and the sea? Is it trapping us? Or is it endless possibilities? Or is it something else for you? For me, it's just always been there. Hmm. For, we're in Cornwall. We're surrounded by sea hmm. on three sides, and a and a huge river on the on the fourth side. And where where I am in West Cornwall, it's only going to take a little bit of a sea level rise, and we'll we'll be an island ourselves. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't really think about it too. much. The only time I really think about the sea is when I'm far away from it and I hmm. notice it, it's not there and I feel a very feel very different we've got friends up in up in Wales up by up in Montgomery hmm. sort of on the on the Welsh English border um Shropshire border and I think that's the place I've been to over the last few years which is the furthest away from the sea I've ever been and it does I feel like I'm on a different planet when I'm there Really? Yeah, I really... And I love it. I've, I've sort of grown to love it and the rolling hills and the countryside and all that kind of stuff, but I'm much more of a coastal person than a countryside person. You know, people say it, like Cornwall's rural, but I always think of Cornwall being coastal. Mm. And obviously this this comes on the back of bait and the, and, the, and the relative success that had, which I'm guessing must have come as a hell of a pleasant surprise because I remember, from what I remember our conversation last time was you basically returned to your own like how much pleasure you got out of film. You weren't thinking about how you might or might not make something popular. No, I, I went back to making films that I wanted to make and doing things that excited me. And this, I think the success of Bay is a real good advert for for staying within your comfort zone, I think. But, but with that, with what happened with Bay comes expectation. So how did you as a filmmaker hold on to 
what was you, essentially your strength as a filmmaker when I'm guessing there's that, oh my God, what does the second film mean kind of thing? Yeah, well, we had a strategy. I spoke to Denzel Monk, who's the producer of Ennis Main, and Matthew Bates, who's my agent. And we all sort of agreed that the best thing to do was just to go again, like bait on a small scale, quite a small scale film, same cast, same crew, um, different genre, but try and make something small scale, get it done quickly, get it out there before we thought about it too much really and that was that was the plan and then and then we had this um pandemic come along which sort of put that scuppered that idea really slowed everything down but also gave me a lot of time to think which mm. wasn't necessarily a good thing because I, I, I did start thinking then what people might expect from a second film but i think i you know I, i'd spent so much time with bait in Q&A saying I never thought about the audience and I was only making the film for me and if people mm. liked it that was a bonus that I really had to sort of stick with that and I kept reminding myself that that was my that was my kind of mantra to mm. to not think about the audience and just to to stick you know stay loyal to the way that I wanted to work and the way that I enjoyed working and and stay loyal to the people that mm. I'd been working with so it was oh yeah I was certainly more conscious um that there might be an audience waiting for this film. So when 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 Ennis Main was announced, I suppose, in the news, which was like you say, pre almost pre-pandemic, if I remember rightly, it wasn't wasn't that long after the debate had sort of been doing the rounds. So you were in sort of stasis for a while with it, or was you still able to make it? Well, with COVID, yeah. um, no, we were just we were sort of shut down before we started. Okay. So we it was um, it, it was March, wasn't it? March twenty twenty when the when the sort of lockdown first happened at the end of that month. We were due to start shooting May in May and June, mm. and we were ju- we were just shut down. I mean, it, it was kind of perfect timing for us. It couldn't have. Uh, you know, obviously a global pandemic isn't ideal, but if you're going to have a global pandemic, then we were perfectly, we were in the perfect position to be shut down because I think everything was in place. All the contracts were were signed. We were ready to go, but we hadn't started shooting money, mm. uh, sh- uh, shooting and spending money. So, and I, you know, I knew a lot of films who were, who just went by the wayside because they were in development and the development deal just went away or films that were in production and they got shut down because they couldn't carry on working so we we kind of hit a bit of a sweet spot really and we were just put on hiatus for we just put it back a year the film had to be shot in the springtime really so it was a no-brainer as soon as we knew we couldn't shoot we just said right we'll put it back a year and see where we are in a year's time we end up shooting again we were still in lockdown when we shot it effectively but by then you could work you know if it if it was if it was work we 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 could do it but it was um yeah it was quite strict controls over what we could do but it all fed into the way that i wanted to work anyway um it's it's not overtly period but you could call it a period because it is set in 1973 as it sets itself up what's significant about that year specifically or what is significant about making it a period piece that you would have lost if you'd have tried to make a the same story contemporary? Um, I, well, the, the significance of 1973 is, I. it sounds really flippant, but I really love the way that the date 1973 looks when it's written down. Nothing flippant about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's an aesthetic consideration. I knew that that date was going to be written over and over again. So. I like the sound of the word elbow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, that, was, that, that was why it was 1973. It was always going to be in the 1970s because I wanted it to be a kind of homage to those 1970s films that I think, I think it was Kim Newman who said were sort of almost horror films. They were kind of horror films without 
being overtly horrific. Yeah. So I wanted it to to fit in that in that kind of era. Um, I'm writing another film at the moment, which is a period piece, but it's set in 1990. And I think there's a real significance of making a film, especially if there's an element of mystery in it that predates the internet and mobile phones, you know, because they're, they're a real easy, um, well, they're real handy problem-solving devices. And yeah. if you haven't got that problem-solving device, then it, it puts the onus on the audience. So it was important that this was a, a, simpler, a simpler time yeah. and, a, and, a, and a, a more difficult time to communicate, I think, was, was quite key. There's very little dialogue in this because, because largely we're, we're with one character, the volunteer for, for, for I guess, 80, 80% of the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you play with sound a lot. I was interested to read that you don't, you don't record the sound of what you're getting, but when we watch the film, the crunch of foot and gravel, the generator, the radio interference and stuff are very, very important parts of the, at least the audio aesthetic to the film. So... Yeah, I think they have to be because because there is no dialogue or it's very little dialogue. You know, the the dialogue without meaning sound pretentious. The dialogue is in the the sound design. Every everything, everything in the film. I wanted to kind of feel like it was sentient. That every as everything was in dialogue with everything else. Um, and I yeah, I don't record any location sound. Is that like because when we when we talked about Bay, you you didn't your choice not to record the the the, the dialogue was about expediency, that you didn't have to be sort of... You could more run and gun without needing to get the dialogue there and then. You just get the action. Yeah, and the, and I, I can't record sync dialogue with the with that camera anyway because the camera doesn't run. It's not it's not a sync camera, so you can't record sync sound. So it would be... it would You could record dialogue, but you'd have to re-time it all in the, in the edit anyway. But for me, it's just... It's mostly like a... Um, a practical, well, it started as a practical decision. You know, it's a very noisy camera. It's a non-sync camera, but also I'm shooting in, I haven't got complete control over locations. So for, for Ennis Main, you know, there's a lot of it is around a, an isolated cottage on an island. And now that cottage isn't particularly isolated and it's not on an island. There's a very busy farm next to it and there's ramblers all all around it, all over the moor. So to to convey a sense of isolation sonically would be very difficult if I was recording location sound. Visually, it's very easy because I just don't film the, where the farm is and I don't film the ramblers. Although if you look very closely at Ennis Main, it has been pointed out that there is a rambler in the back of one Ghost shot. Ghost in the machine. Yeah, there is. There's somebody <laughs> on the horizon. So that So it was always a practical logistical decision originally but it's become a creative decision now to the point where the, the film that we're, we're going to shoot next has got a lot more characters and a lot more dialogue but we've just taken the decision that we're going to not record any dialogue and post sync everything because of the control and the sort of quality it gives but the I like, films. but i like i like the idea of you of adding in the sound of a generator adding in the sound of foot and gravel because it, it helps you really emphasize the point and it puts us into the characters, sort of, almost like the, the the cinematic world of the character, as opposed to the real world of the character. Yeah, yeah, and and quite often, I will go back to the locations to pick up the real sounds of places, okay. but often I won't because I just think I can't be. Well, partly I can't be bothered hmm. to revisit every single individual location. Yeah, because um, I just haven't got the time because I work so much on my own. But then that forces me to then visit things like sound effects records and stuff like that to try and pick up stuff that doesn't quite fit. You know, it it 
it's there's a sort of element of plausibility about it, but it doesn't quite fit. So like the yeah, it's almost like mechanical versus natural. Yeah, in a way, even it's though a, it's still probably recorded from a natural. thing. Yeah, and it will be, but it'll be slightly out of place. So that, like the wind on the island is like a, a an Arctic whistling wind, which it, which you wouldn't have on the island. You yeah, know, it's yeah, probably yeah. something that's been used on like Frozen Planet or something. But I put it on the film. Um, and suddenly you've got this Arctic whistling wind around this cottage, and it and it's a level of abstraction without being really overt about it. It's just something slightly off with it. Yeah, I think, but it just it lends itself to cinema in a way that that because yeah, I mean, I I just love I love doing ab, I love abstracting the sound because mm. it's much I think it's much more sophisticated way of doing it visually and it's much easier to do it with audio i think a lot of the time it's very difficult to put to have a, a visual abstraction within the mm. frame that that um that is kind of that lasts quite often you'll look at an image mm. and go oh, that's a bit weird and then then you work out why it's weird yeah. when it's to do with sound you quite often you don't ever work out why it's weird and actually consciously you don't even appreciate it's weird there's just something slightly off i think like yeah, Lynch is the king of it. You know, he'll just do something. There'll be like one of the beds, one of the sound beds will be, be playing backwards or something. Yeah. You won't notice that it's playing backwards. You won't go, oh, hold on, that's playing backwards. You'll, but you, something will be uneasy about it that you'll never unpick as a as but an you make, but, but the nature of how you've made the rest of the film, you make us hypersensitive to it in a way. Yeah, yeah. I suppose, in, you know, and I, I did do it in bait as well at certain times, yeah. but it was much more... Yeah, it's 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 signposted much more in Ennis Main. Yeah, because it's because it is a it's it's you you fracture it in terms of where we are in time and place. Yeah, you know we're never quite always sure. Yeah, yeah. And in, in a way, some of the sounds get us back to a place that we understand. In a way, yeah. And then hopefully you get back to a place where you understand, and then and then the rugs pulled out yeah. again. You know, it's like the sequence at the end of Ennis Main where all the where the radios kind of swap swap sounds so that the the am radio starts acting like the marine vhf radio and, and vice versa i've i've just watched the, the the 35 mil print here it's part of the reason why we're here just okay. to sign off the the print and um i haven't seen it for a little while and i did i did notice a few and, and actually it's now we're listening to an optical soundtrack it sounds different than the dcp soundtrack and i've started noticing things go, oh yeah i remember doing that i've, ne- I've never noticed it in the dcp and now suddenly i'm noticing it again Okay, so so it, 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 it's optimizing something that you wanted to to have there. That yeah, and it, and actually, it's made some mistakes audible that weren't necessarily audible when we were doing the mix. But now it's on an optical soundtrack. Oh, that's quite a sharp fade out there. Why did I do that? And it's just because you know, it's just it's in in the same way that it looks different. It also sounds different when it's a print. Now, Mary Woodbine is an actor you've worked with before. Woodvine. Oh, Woodvine. Sorry, my own my own typo. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> It's someone you've worked with before. She plays the volunteer, who, like, like we established before, is is really central to the to the uh, to the film. For that kind of role where you're so much in the spotlight, what's your? I mean, you've worked with her before, so there's there's already some trust there, I'd imagine, and yeah. you know, and wanting to work you again. But obviously, this is a, a little different than working behind the bar in a pub in, in that she did in, in Bay. So what's the comment? Well, no, she was the second homeowner. Oh, sorry, in Bay. yeah, sorry. What's the conversation like for that kind of role where you where the expectation is to sort of I mean give everything, isn't it? Really? Well, yeah. I mean, Mary's my partner as well. Okay, oh, so, that makes life easier. Yeah. Definitely. Or well, in some ways, in some ways, it's you know it's it's trickier as well because obviously yeah. we've got a personal relationship and 
domestic relationship and all that kind of stuff and and then working together as well but i mean yeah i mean i'd hope there's sort of trust between the two of us i mean i sort of trust her implicitly with with the role and hopefully she trusts me in terms of you know the 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 filmmaking side of it i i always wanted to give her a film that she could almost like carry single-handedly which she which she does with with this film really i've worked with her several times before and always in supporting roles but this was and and she wasn't always going to play the volunteer in this film and in fact i was quite wary of casting her because i didn't want to be you know i didn't want it to appear nepotistic that i was just you know writing something for my partner and casting her in it but I, th- you know, and, and for a st- for a time, she was almost like acting as the um, casting director for the film, you know, because she was suggesting her contemporaries and her peers as possibilities for for people who could play the the volunteer. Mm. But eventually, you know, I sort of came around and admitted to myself that I'd written the part for her. Okay, and I said to Denzel, you know, producer and the, and film for you know the execs and everything. I said, you know, I'd really like Mary to play the part, and and everybody pretty much said we always thought it was going to be Mary who was going really? to be in it. So, yeah, so it was, um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's, it, it I think it's been a, it's been a really good experience working together. Mm. It, it's funny because the, you know, the, it was only 21 day shoot. So actually it's quite a minor thing in terms of time working together well, on, the film. on a film shoot isn't it it's not it's not normal amount it's not like a normal working day it's... no but it's funny that the life of the film really sort of dwarfs the actual process of making the film especially the shooting of the film yeah so um what's been really nice is you know is is, is to develop the film together shoot the film together mm. and then now be able to do the promotion of the film together which has been really good yeah. you know like going going to Cannes together and as you were there, you know, yeah. the two of us being able to get up on stage and introduce the film was that, I mean, that was a real magic moment because she's been there with me before when I've done stuff, and, yeah. but she's been there to support me or vice versa. You know, when she's been doing something, I've been there to just to be there with her because I'm her partner, but to go up there and be sort of kind of co-authors of this yeah. work is, that was, I mean, that's something that will stay with me forever. So that's, that's been amazing. Yeah, because I, I, I interviewed uh, Joel Otruggio, who you might know if you watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine, He's done his first horror film. Mary is a massive Brooklyn Nine Nine right, fan. Well, I, I don't watch it, but she right, does. so she'll if she when she listens to this, Sergeant, <laughs> yeah. Sergeant Boyle is the character who plays. Well, right. he, just, he just directed his first horror film, yeah. and he played at Fright Fest, and his lead is his wife. Right, and when they shot the movie, at the end of each day, they slept separately. Right, they kept they, you know they kept separate in terms of. It was like the working relationship right. for the shoot. We did, we so we haven't got the resources for that. <laughs> 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 yeah. no but i mean that is funny because you do you know i'll i'll be setting up a shot a close-up of her you know like on the harbor side or something mm. and i'd set up the camera and i'll be stood two foot away from her looking down the viewfinder at her and, and a light will be being tweaked or some production design will be sorted out so we'll have a minute where we'll be talking non-film stuff and it'll be sort of like you know did you remember to buy the cat food no, did I thought you were getting it? You know, and you have these <laughs> moments of sort of domestic, yeah. You know, not always fraught, but sometimes moments of you know when it comes down to things like childcare and stuff like that. It's like yeah. we got to get home, and you know, if we finish early today. We should definitely sit down and have a family meal, and you know, you have to keep all of that that that's 
obviously it goes without saying that's all really important stuff is it's very difficult to prioritize that stuff when mm. you are in that mad sort of you know 21 day yeah intense shoot that we that we were in you know so it's quite so it was um i think we came through it really well I, mary always says we had we had one sort of one slight barney Hmm. On, the, on the shoot where you know the rest of the crew kind of just walked away and pretended that they were doing other stuff i i remember two but she remembers one so what's what, maybe one was just in my head given how close you are then going into the film for obvious reasons what 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 was she, what did she do on the shoot that complete that, that, can you think of an example where what she chose to do as the actor and obviously not as your wife that that surprised you and was obviously important to what the, what you might have imagined the volunteer to be like. So any examples of that? She she bought her extrovert nature to a character that was written as an introvert. You know, we're, we're very different. I'm I'm an ex, I would say quite an extreme introvert and she's quite an extreme extrovert. Okay. So every character that I write is introverted. I can't help, you know, I can't write extroverts. You know, they're unbearable if I write extroverts. So all of my characters are introverts. So that's a really important moment of collaboration is bringing in somebody who's uh, getting the input of somebody who's an extrovert to bring a complexity to to the characters that I write. Mm. So she she constantly surprised me with what she was doing with the cam with with the character considering how little I was allowing her to do you know she didn't have the luxury of hmm. dialogue for yeah, yeah 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 but the amount that she can do physically with very little gesture so what what know. give me because give me an example then of where she's being how you perceive extrovert with what is clearly like you say more of an introverted role in the film well just being reactive I think her reaction her reactions are externalized rather than internalized you know and there's there's uh, I ju- I just think there's stuff that she will do with a look that I don't understand how she does it. I don't understand how she can ask a question of an audience just with a with a very simple look. Um, that constantly surprises me, but it actually doesn't constantly surprise me because I wouldn't I wouldn't have cast her if I didn't know she could do that. Yeah. Because- I mean, that's part of the pleasure of watching the film is that the way she's the way she's moving about and the way she's looking. Yeah. It, it, it's part of the what we're not clear about, but we're completely compelled to keep keep watching. Yeah, and I think there's you know there's there's so much going on inside. Mm. There has to be because there's no outlet for it, so it's all going on inside. And in some ways, that's that's a result of of there being no dialogue and the way mm. it's written. But mostly, it comes from the character who's who's sort of portraying uh, the actor who's portraying that character, and she's got you know all of her. I think. You, she's a fantastic stage presence and she's mm. a very funny performer. You know, she's sort of known for comedy and on the stage, mm. um, intuitively a very funny performer and very physical, you know, amazing physicality. And although it's a physical role in terms of she's constantly. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me what inspires your music. And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? 
Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply on the move in the film i don't allow her to communicate much through gesture there's certainly very little communication through humor and almost no communication through dialogue so it kind of amazes me how complex the character can be yeah, when you, you take you, all of that away i was gonna say you almost make her like a like a, a mouse in a wheel you give her the there's a lot of routine to the film isn't there yeah I mean, we just watched the print a minute ago and the bit where the sort of the bit that isn't routine is her interaction with with um, the character that Ed yeah. plays, the boatman. And I think that scene really gets me when she says goodbye to him. Mm. And it got me today. I haven't seen the film for a few weeks. And it and it really got me that, that moment. And part of it is because it's a bit of human interaction mm. that hasn't existed throughout the rest of the film. But it's the way they play it. And the, there's one line that she delivers that just floors me. And I don't think of it as as Mary I think of it as that character yeah. you know and it really it does it really gets me yeah um, and just just going back to that idea of routine that dominates obviously there's the, the taking the records of the flowers which is the job I guess of the volunteer yeah but there's this other routine which is dropping a stone down into into a hole in the, in the floor into a cave down to a cave what's that I, I, I've seen the film twice now and I've enjoyed watching her do it but I don't know what I mean, apart from what we get revealed of what's what she's seeing down there, but what's that? What's that routine part of? What is that symbolising? I'm not going to say what it symbolises. Um, That's not fair, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, it well, I mean, it, it is part of that routine. Mm. You know, routine. I think routine is very. You mean like shit? Like that character has added it into her her routine of. That's how I see it. Okay, okay. Yeah. I, I, and, I, and I think that's, you know, it, it, routine's almost like a crutch, isn't it, to, to lean on. Mm. I think, you know, this film was written before the pandemic and mm. before I'd even ever considered what a pandemic might be like. By the time we came to shoot it, and certainly by the time I edited it, we I'd lived through a pandemic like we all had. Mm. And I think the significance of routine had become really interesting, mm. you know, that... So a friend of mine who's a photographer sent me a photo of um, of me le- leaning out of our upstairs bedroom window during the pandemic. And uh, it's just a photo of me looking out of the window. But I, know, I remember the day that that was... Well, I don't remember the day. I remember the time of day it was taken. Hmm. Because every day during the pandemic, 
they would walk past the house at a certain time and we would say hello out the window. And that was really important during that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, it would be mental for me to say, oh yeah, at a certain time of day I look out the window. But it's all relative to what you're doing. So it became quite, there was a like, synergy between what she was going through and, and what people went through during lockdown, I think. So those those minor, pardon the pun, those little things that you yeah, do, yeah. yeah take on great significance. And if they're subverted in any way, like if you forget to do them or an outside force subverts them, they become quite important, you know? They become like... I I started writing short stories every morning during lockdown. Yeah. And I've continued to do it. Yeah. Because I've enjoyed doing it. Yeah. But it it was probably a survival technique to start with, wasn't it? I wanted a pat on the back every day. Yeah. And it gave me that. Yeah. Well, so, you know, just going out and doing the, the one hour or half hour, whatever it was supposed to be, exercise. Yeah. We used to go out in a tiny little bit of a field behind the house and run up and down the field. Mm. And it was, to not do that, I don't know if, I don't, don't remember any days when we didn't do that. I think if we hadn't done that, it would have, we would have all been in a, such a tailspin of where we yeah. were in the day and what well, was make, going on. I guess on that and, makes sense in terms of the, the limited scope of what you show us the volunteer has got to do on the island. The idea that she would manipulate her own routine yeah. to make it more interesting or more survivable, however you want to put it. Yeah, and it, and it's superstitions as well. That's the the idea that, you know, you you, you do something because you're superstitious okay. and maybe you can't remember why you started doing it. But I've got so many, you know, going back to being a, a coastal dweller, the, the coast of Cornwall, everybody's riddled with superstitions. Hmm. The things they have to do, be, and it all comes from people making their living on the sea and risking their life going to sea and not having any control. So mm. inventing things that give you the idea that you're in control of your own destiny. So, oh, I saw I saw the vicar on the way to the harbour today. That means I can't go to sea because it's a bad omen. You know, these little things that people all put mm. to make, to fool them into thinking they've got some kind of control over their destiny. And I, I'm just riddled with mm. with those things. So that's, it, that's all in that character. I was interested... In your Q and A when you played when you did your world premiere at Cannes, you talked about the fact that there was an influence on you before you went into it. Like everyone said, "Well, Bates obviously a horror film," and, <laughs> and you began to sort of sort of go, well, "Maybe, maybe I did make one." So then, <laughs> so then you set out to make one, and you, I think, if I remember rightly, you kind of said, "But I didn't make one." No, well, I, I tried to write one, and then realised I hadn't written one. I still think it is. I still think... But if you read the script, it isn't. In the same way that if you read Bait, Bait reads like a 90-minute soap opera episode. Okay. But because of the form, there's a suggestion of... So the the sounds, the colours, the the, the holding of frame and things like that. Yeah, just the disconnect between sound and picture, the fact it's posting, all of these added layers of abstraction, the non-linear way that it's cut together. I think all of that lends itself to being a genre film. Mm. It's like one of my heroes, Lawrence Gordon Clark, who did the ghost stories for Christmas for BBC. When when he was... um, when he moved from documentary to drama, the BBC, he was assigned a cameraman and an editor. Yeah. I think this is right. One of them or both of them said to him, you know, what you've got to understand is now you're doing drama and you're doing horror. Horror is the one genre that const- where you're constantly drawing attention to the form, you know, whether it's with sound or whether it's with an edit or a crash zoom or something like that. You're constantly drawing attention to the form in order to elicit a reaction from the audience. And I think... That's what Bait did. Bait yeah. constantly reminded the audience that it was that the audience were watching a film, mm. which 
which made it feel like a horror without there being any horror within it. There was a sense of foreboding. There was a sense that you couldn't quite trust what the next edit was going to be or the next sound cue was going to be. And so when people pointed out, I thought, oh, it'd be fun to 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 do a horror film. So then yeah. I set out to overtly write a horror script. But I'm, I'm not very good at writing scripts with huge amounts of context, backstory, um, dramatic contrivance, all of that kind of stuff. Hmm. So actually, and on all of those things... A kind of needed in a in a genre screenplay, I think a conventional genre I'd screenplay. I agree with that. So when I read it back, it was like, oh, I haven't, I failed. I haven't written a horror film. But then I thought, actually, no, well, the horror will come from the form, the the actual. So the in a way, you're phys- the, so in a way, you're the ingredient that makes it a horror when you start to make it. Yeah, the- well, and yeah, I'm, and, and in some ways, I. I quite like the idea of being given a screenplay that's very straight yeah. and then subvert it through the making of, of it, which I think is what bait was, yeah. you know? So when but, people... But then, but then bait, you could you could draw parallels with, say, Pinter's stuff, you know, the way that if a character does something absurd, it almost makes it uneasy. Mm. You know, you kind of, you're, for, you're forever on edge then because you're like, yeah. I don't know what to expect. Yeah. But then the, but then the, con- but the consequences aren't necessarily horrific. No, they might be true. sort of unsettling or, mm. or or you might not be able to make sense of them mm. but i wanted it, it with with ennis man i wanted you know the consequences to be horrific because right, okay. for me for me horror the scariest horror for me is when time stops making sense mm. and i think again that was i thought about that a lot during the pandemic you know the idea that it was bad. You know, we were undoubtedly living through... I've a- started to say, basically, those two years don't count. If yeah. I've not seen you for four years, then I've not seen you for two, really. Yeah, yeah. Which is a weird way to think about yeah. two years. But I think the comforting thing was every night... You know, and also we were in a house with a 11, 12-year-old. Yeah. So he, his well-being was the priority, you know, yeah. making it sort of normalising the situation for him and that kind of stuff. But so a lot of bedtimes was like yep yeah, see you in the morning sleep well sweet dreams that kind of stuff and mm. and going to bed safe in the knowledge that the sun would come up in the morning and gradually things would get better they might get worse first but eventually yeah, normal somewhere over the we'll, horizon yeah we'll get to where we are now where mm. things aren't normal and there's a, a there's a huge amount of trauma that everybody's dealing with and a lot of people have lost people but things will get better you know mm. because every morning the sun comes up and every time the sun comes up, it's a new day. And every time there's a new day, there's new hope. For me, horror is when that stops happening. Yeah. So time stops making sense. One of my one of my favorite horror films from recent times, or reasonably recent times, was the the Blair Witch, mm-hmm. the third Blair Witch film. Really? That's a, that's a got, rare call. We'll go on. Yeah. And. I know it's a deeply flawed film, and I think you know mo- I, I, most films are quite flawed. Yeah, I don't. Um, and I think horror films more than any are flawed, but I think there's hardly any horror films I've ever seen that I haven't looked at and gone, "Oh wow, that's a good idea." You know, horror yeah. filmmakers are always innovating; they're always doing interesting stuff. There's always something to take out of a horror film, unless they're the most cynically, you know, rehash or, Mm. you know, made purely for money. There's always something interesting going on in horror. And with with that Blair Witch film, it freaked me out when time stopped making sense, when it didn't get light Mm. the next day. And I can't remember very much about the film, but I remember being totally spooked by the idea that time had stopped making sense. Yeah. And I think, um, 
Ari Aster does that very well in, in Midsummer because it because it never goes dark. Yeah. So you kind of go, I'm I mean today, tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> Peter Strickland in Barbarian Sound Studio when you know, and, and it all stops making sense when he's trying to get his flight ticket reimbursed, and then they say, Oh no, you weren't on that flight. And it's like, oh, hold on. You know, when reality that's the ho- that's the horror I like, those little shifts in But 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 the volunteer has no one to uh confirm or deny the shifts in time that you're playing with with your film, you're, you, the, as an audience member, we're, we're forever playing catch-up in terms of the real and the unreal, yeah. which is a, even more unsettling from a viewer's point of view because there's, there's this is unsettling. I can confirm that. You know, <laughs> oh my God, what are we going to do? Then you're kind of going with what's the plan to get out of this, whereas yeah, yeah. what we're watching, we're, tra- we're, we're, we're about two steps behind, it felt like, yeah. a lot of times. Well, you know, I did, that's why I wanted it to be like a fever dream where, you're, mm. where you've got nothing to hold on to. Yeah. You know, and, and, and what that would do to an audience. I mean, the one I'm, the film I'm w- working on at the moment, I'm writing at the moment, is much more what you just s- described, where the audience are with the protagonist trying to make sense of a situation that's, mm. that's weird. Yeah. Whereas with, with Ennis Main, what I wanted was the, 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 fund, the film, the actual materiality of the film, of the object to be. Uh, nonsensical mm. to be illogical and 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 you know like a dream mm. where, yeah because you because you you i mean we've not mentioned it yet but you know you've got a standing stone plays a major role in this in this film yeah and it's almost like a standing stone has become sentient which is, which is terrifying yeah. in of itself or the other way around maybe yeah <laughs> if you believe the cornish myths then all the standing you know the religious myths yeah then the standing stones were all petrified humans who had sinned in one way or another. Right, okay. That was the Christian telling of it. Ah, okay. See, I've I've done some work into black metal for a, for a film I've been trying I've been developing and what I found out during, during the research is the church burnings which were horrifying in the 90s was a kind of crude attempt to destroy Christianity and take Norway back to pre-Christian pagan times. Yeah. So they thought these emblems of what was the new Christianity. Yeah. Is what we need to get rid of to, to that will return us to some place that is ours. Yeah, I mean, slightly misguided, but uh, yeah. Well, it, it, but, but, I mean, but it's weird all... to see it that like written and that was the uh, at first I thought it was just young people being stupid. Yeah, but there's some sort of warped logic to what yeah. they were doing. It's ne- no, they're never being stupid. They're always there's there's some there's always some mission behind it, isn't there? Another part of the sound is that is the sound you make, not not the sound that you go and find something to discombobulate, but literally the music and the soundscape that you've created around this film. And at times, you know, I, f- I mean, when I, when I was able to watch it for the second time, I was like, this sound is literally assaulting me at times. You know, it's not, you're not, you're not, you're not just giving us some sonic color to, to add to what I'm seeing. You're really sort of going a, a completely juxtaposed to what I'm looking at in some senses. Yeah. Um, what, what was your, what was your process behind developing the, the sound for it? What, where, where were you, where were you coming from for that? I, I, I dealt with the sound in the same way that I, I dealt with the color really. Mm-hmm. I think early on when we decided the film was going to be color, mm. my, my thinking was if it's going to be color, it's going to be a hell of a lot of color. Yeah. And with the sound design, I think, you know, if I'm going to do the sound then I'm going to really do the sound, there's, going, there's not going to be much subtlety in, yeah. in this. It's going to be as austere as and as brutal as the visuals are mm. in the same way that the film crash zooms and goes into extreme close-ups and the, the sonic landscape was going to be the same, you know, it was yeah. going to be, 
it was it wasn't really going to take any prisoners. Yeah, yeah, you were, you were kind of like that, that idea that the that the Earth's vibrating. <laughs> yeah, well, we just yeah we're just looking at it in the in the cinema here, and the, the the ceiling was definitely vibrating in the last twenty minutes of the film. And Denzel, the producer, actually did say to me, "Do you think we should need to warn some of the older cinemas about this because the ceiling could come in because <laughs> the sort of the bass rumble on some yeah. of it is insane." Yeah, but it, yeah. I, I kind of do it all at the same time. I, I do the I do the picture cutting and I do a lot of the foley and I do the soundtrack all concurrently. So I have a an an, an analog synthesizer next to my. Oh, so you're like 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 you're playing along with yeah. The, quite often do. So the, you've not written this music. No. You've... Well, I I I don't write. I can't. Because I was fascinated music. by that idea of you you doing all having to do. I have three plates on your head balanced all yeah. the time. That seems like a... Yeah, well, I do. I, You know, I stand on a piece of um, wooden flooring yeah. that I've built up in the studio and I do the footsteps on there. A lot of that gets replaced by the by the, um, by the the Foley people and, the, and, and Rich, who, who did the final mix, kind yeah. of replaced some of my Foley recording or a lot of my Foley recording because it was quite badly recorded. But I, I have to record that in order to do the picture edit because there's no dialogue to rely on. So a lot of the picture cutting is relying on the rhythms of um of the foley and the sound design hmm. but i also record a lot of stuff to a tape loop i've got a i build an infinite tape loop of quarter inch tape between two reel to reel machines hmm. and i sort of loop a lot of stuff in that way and that's all happening while i'm cutting the picture and that's not very subtle you know it's quite it's an it's an sort of infinite decaying loop that kind of is quite difficult to control okay so that's why the sound isn't particularly subtle at times okay so it's like a you're not worried about this about any kind of sophisticated music you're, you're i can't do sophisticated music no i figured that's what you that's what you're saying in <laughs> yeah. a way but i don't, I don't i mean it doesn't make it bad it well, just makes I, it different. I, try, I did try and i mean when i did the soundtrack for bay it was very much just sort of chord progressions hmm. which were then reverbed and echoed to infinity so it just sounded like drones yeah so and but and i never really intend i never intended for that to be on the final film and then we kind of all sort of fell in love with the soundtrack so left it on the film um and then off the back of that invader records put it out as a soundtrack which did quite well and was quite well received so this time i thought oh yeah i'm gonna do the score again but I it had gone to my head a little bit and I was thinking about the record you know while I was doing the soundtrack for the film I was thinking wow of all the things like when I started this interview like about the idea of making the follow-up to bait it was <laughs> I might was, make another record yeah exactly that was the bit you know and I was you know that that um you know the opening theme I was thinking, god this could be a single you know maybe put this out as a seven inch you know and I've gone totally insane with that so um <laughs> how'd you rein yourself in well just by listening back to what I'd done Right, gone, okay. actually, no, I can't, I can't, I can't write a melody hmm. <laughs> that people are going to go, oh, wow, that's amazing. But what I can do is I can create a soundscape that f- works for the film. So right, okay. I ended up creating a lot of the score has got a lot of the Foley within the score, which is great. It's, we're going to perform the score live here in NFT one on the 1st of May. Hmm. Um, that's all unconfirmed, but at the moment that's the plan. And it's going to be quite complicated because to, in order to do a, you know, when we did bait, all we did was record, remove my score from the yeah. film. And then Gweno came in and performed mm. her own score with this. When we re- remove the score, we're going to be removing loads of the sound design and Foley. So not only is it going to be a live score event, but we're going to actually have to do some of the Foley live and all that kind of stuff. So it's all, the score is all, is, is more complicated this yeah. time. 
Right now, it'd be, it'd be a miss. The only thing we haven't talked about is is is, is the colours. The, the 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 greens are verdant. The red coat is very red, and and you've already referenced um, a certain sort of seventies style of cinema that you 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 enjoy. Yeah, and there's a very iconic red coat in seventies cinema that Nick Rogue filmed. Never heard of him. <laughs> With that, I mean that choice of of wardrobe, and and obviously red against green works is works really well in the film. But obviously, there was that little bit in me that was like, it was a genuinely an accident mm. and a coincidence. That I'm massively influenced by Nick Rogue. Yeah. He's probably you know he's my probably my favourite director. I would mm. have thought um, his approach to cinematography and editing. Um, a massive influence on me. The red coat was an accident. The, originally, it was going to be a yellow coat. So she was going to have a yellow coat on and the red coat was going to be the one that she finds washed up. And okay. she was going to find it in the water and she was going to spot it several times through the film just flowing below the surface and it was going to look like a pool of blood. And then eventually she sticks a stick into the water, pulls out the red coat, realises it isn't blood and a sense of relief at that point. But then actually removing that from the water kicks off all of this other stuff. So it actually it's much more disastrous than it being simply blood. We I then decided that it was going to be too tricky to shoot that in the water. So it was going to be washed up. At the same time, I thought if she's got a yellow, she's got brown, long brown hair, yellow Mac, blue jeans, I thought people are going to think that I'm ripping off Charlotte Gansberg's costume <laughs> in Antichrist. <laughs> So you can't win it, can you? So I switched it <laughs> and said, actually, she'll have the red coat, yeah, and the yellow coat will be the one that's washed up. And yeah. then while we were shooting, first day, I think I overheard a conversation. Somebody saying, "Oh yeah, the red coat's a homage to Don't Look Now," mm. and I suddenly thought, "Oh, of course it is." <laughs> but it was it was an accident, you know. I I avoided this really obscure costume reference yeah. of Antichrist that nobody would have thought of. Yeah, and walked straight into this real obvious homage, but it's great because it's a talking point, and and I'm not hiding from the fact that Nick Rhodes. No, no, I don't think it's going to be a shame. I mean, I think it's, I think the look and feel of your film yeah. lends the comparison as well. Because okay, a red well, coat, no, it's deliberate. Then yeah, a red okay, coat on yeah. its own <laughs> isn't isn't a Nick Rogue reference, is it? I mean, the fact no. the fact you've shot it with with sixty mil film and the, and the yeah, colours yeah. are doing what film does. Yeah, and uh, you know, and it, and it was all in its little Red Riding Hood and all yeah, that yeah. kind of stuff. You know, so it's it's got a real lineage to it. I think. Brilliant. Well, look, uh, Ennis Main is out in cinemas in UK and Ireland on the 13th of January, 2023. And just give me a say thank you very much for joining us on Britflix Podcast. Thanks, Stuart. It's been an absolute pleasure, as always.
Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online Masters of Social Work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. You did something for the first. 